Welcome to NCBA's Cattleman's Call podcast with host Lane Nordland. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the Cattleman's Call podcast. We hope you're enjoying the series of conversations we are having with the stakeholders that are a part of the great industry here in the United States, that, of course, the cattle industry. Today, we are going to be talking about public lands ranching. This is an issue that is close to my heart, hailing from the state of Montana and understanding the pivotal role that ranchers play in improving rangeland while also playing a pivotal role in agriculture's uh, role in the ranching industry. We're joined by some outstanding leaders. First is Eric Jennings from Spearfish, South Dakota. He serves as the South Dakota Cattlemen's Association's Federal Lands Chair. All the way from Orville, California, he serves as the Vice Chair of the Federal Lands Committee for the National Cattlemen's Beef Association, Mr. Dave Daly. You've heard about him before. He's a top hand in recruitment for the NCBA. And, of course, the Public Lands Council's Executive Director and the NCBA's Federal Lands Lead, Mr. Ethan Lane, joins joins us here today. Gentlemen, how's it going here today? We're actually recording this at the summer business meeting of the cattle industry, but Erica, how, how are things looking up there in uh, Spearfish area? Uh, you know, things are looking pretty good. We're, we're good and green. We've uh, It's been a tough winter through through uh, through South all of South Dakota. Um, we've enjoyed the damp weather, which has not been very conducive to, to cattle health and hay production, but the, the pastures look really good, so we, we focus on that part of it. Yep. Well, and uh, Dave, you're out there in California. What's it been like? The, was the winter pretty open for you guys? Uh, got some good precip? For the first time in many years, we, we had a really wet winter. After years of drought and reservoirs are full, huge snowpack, uh, we were about 150% of normal on rainfall. And if you know much about California, that snowpack in the mountains is key to the whole agricultural, what we do in that state. So it's been a good year that way. There's trade-offs with that. We also have a lot of fuel and we're coming into fire season. So we're, we're happy with the feed. We're worried where it may lead. And Ethan Lane joins us here today. I, I just heard it's delightful out in Washington, D.C. this time of the year, like 70 degrees, almost like San Diego weather. It, it really is kind of a paradise in July in Washington. You know, 90 and 90 is what we like to shoot for, 90 degrees and 90% humidity. Um, and, and we've been having kind of full both barrels of that the last few weeks. Um, we do get a little reprieve every once in a while. We'll get a 75-degree day, and everybody sprints outside and fires the grill up. Um, but, yeah, it's, it's, an, it's a disgusting time of year to live in Washington, D.C. <laughs> well, of course, we'll talk more about uh, the role and advocacy you play on behalf of the nation's public lands ranchers on a daily basis. But, you know, uh, Dave, let's start with you here. Let's talk about your operation, uh, your, your family and your love for agriculture and, and how public lands are an essential component of your, your ranch. Sure. My family, we came to California 1850 as Irish immigrants. We weren't smart enough to settle on the fertile land, so we went up into the hills, the grazing land, uh, to, to, as gold miners. And that's the way we came. And frankly, we're, we still have that same piece of property. That's where I was raised. So uh, my son would be, and my kids would be sixth generation in the business. But those businesses were pretty diversified. They were logging, timber, mining, all those extraction industries, right? All the bad guys. But that's what I grew up with. I'm really proud of that kind of connection. And so we've continued, and we were taking cattle up to that national forest, which became a national forest before there was one. We took cattle to the, to the, the Sierra Nevada mountains, and uh, starting about 1870, the early diaries, and we still trail cattle to the same parts of the country. So without that, and that connecting point, and it was such a, it was such a, a, a good story for the ecosystem, because we were in the valleys in the wintertime, 
We moved to the high country. We rested the land. It was a rest rotation grazing system before there was one. And so those public lands are really critical. We happen to be on forest service. It's big timber country, high mountain, and real steep. It's not a traditional meadow ecosystem at all. And it's kind of mixed between we have a checkerboard system with a a logging corporation, so it's private public with no fences in between. We summer roughly, it's roughly 100,000 acres of pretty rough country with no fences is where we turn our cattle in summer. Now, Eric, I've been through your country uh, quite a few times there in the Black Hills. Beautiful country over there. Uh, Let's talk about your family and, uh, and being a part of the greatest profession on earth. Uh, sure. Uh, my family, actually, I can trace my ancestry back to, to settling in Deadwood uh, in the 1877, 78 range, which uh, the white man started moving into the Black Hills. Uh, Custer Expedition went through in 1874, so then the, the gold rush was kind of on in 1876. My family came in. They, they never were much for miners. Um, they were more carpenters and cattle traders. Yep. Uh, and that was where the real... So they uh, made money. Well, yeah, exactly. Yeah, that's where the real money comes in on, on the Deadwood Gold Rush was, was the people supplying food. And I live in Spearfish where that area was settled for the gardening possibilities. They developed some irrigation, um, uh, planted a lot of fruit trees, and they supplied food to the miners. And uh, my family lives uh, northwest of Spearfish along Spearfish Creek. Uh, we haven't been on that place very long, just since the mid-60s. Um, so it's, it's mostly a winter operation down there. We have some irrigated ground that we for hay production, and then we, we move up into the forest uh, for summer grazing. Uh, it could be a pretty short season up there. We go up there about the middle of June. Uh, the grass is just getting tall enough to really graze at that point, and the snow kind of chases us out by the middle of October. Uh, so it's, it's very important for a lot of our operations in the foothills that, that are all very good for winter, but they don't have a lot of summer range. And yep. So we're able to utilize the summer range up, up there in the hills. And, Ethan, the Public Lands Council was created back in 1968. Last year, you celebrated 50 years. That convention was down in Park City, Utah. And it was just a great opportunity to learn about the history of PLC and to read those letters in the history books and and to hear Jim McGagna of Wyoming, a a true historian of ranching and uh, public lands ranching in the West. You know what? PLC was created before, in federal lands initiatives, before the Endangered Species Act and a lot of these issues and regulations that came about in the 70s, in the 80s, and up to this point. Let's just talk about your interaction with your members, with public lands ranchers, and the role that they play in the multi-use of public lands. Maybe we talk about what are multi-uses of public lands first for our listeners maybe that are from the East Coast. Well, you know, talking about our 50th anniversary and looking back through that history and, you know, like like these guys, I mean, my my family settled in Arizona in the late 1870s and and have been part of that development of the West, you know, like like most of us, I think, that come from this this industry. And it is interesting to trace how we got to where we are today, why the Public Lands Council is necessary. Um, You know, none of this was intentional, right? I mean, when you look at Homestead, when you look at how we settled the West, uh, it wasn't wasn't like we set up a map and we we had an orderly 50-year plan to populate these areas. We created opportunities, and then then families that were willing to take that gamble came out. They found places with water. They found places with resources, and then they expanded their operations out from there. And by the early 1930s, you have the Taylor Grazing Act kind of trying to formalize that system, and by the 60s, 30 years into the Taylor Grazing Act, you see PLC come, come to be. And, and I think that's a, that's a real interesting kind of trajectory because it shows that you have folks that for generation after generation have been trying to figure out how to get this right. 
and trying to figure out how to let these lands continue to be productive and make sure that these families are able to continue that, that stewardship that they've had while balancing a completely different landscape as the time has gone on um, from all those other groups that have come in. And that really gets to that multiple use piece, right? 40 years ago, when, when the current grazing regs were written, uh, when you know in the Clinton and Babbitt years, in the 90s, 35 years ago, 25 years ago, there weren't nearly the recreational uses on public lands. And that doesn't seem like that long ago to me. You know, I, I, I hunted on, on public land when I was a kid on friends' ranches, and, and you know, we didn't see the four-wheeler traffic that we, saw, we see today. We didn't see the half-million-dollar motorhomes that are circling up around water tanks. We didn't see that, that heavy use. We didn't see traffic jams going on to forest service roads um, like, we, like we do today. And so it's still, in 2019, this evolution of our understanding of how everybody uses these public lands and how we, with a preference right to use those, fit into that, fit into that process. Um, it makes PLC as important today as maybe any time in our history because these challenges are only getting more complex. And, and I think you hear that from these guys in talking about that deep understanding of the land that they work on. That hasn't changed, but the forces that impact that from the outside continue to. You know, a term, a negative term that we hear in the industry is welfare grazing. We hear it all the time because they look at the price of what it costs to, to run cattle or sheep on these grazing allotments. How, how do you address that when you're confronted with a consumer, an outdoorsman, outdoors group, advocacy groups? How, how do you, Dave, Dave, do you want to answer that and maybe how you interact and actually explain, yeah, you pay a fee, but you're also putting a lot back into those public lands along the way. You know, I think one of the challenges we have as ranchers is, is to communicate that effectively, but also to, to do that in a positive manner where we realize that there are multiple uses, and those are important multiple uses. In our area, it's, it's timber and recreation and hunting, obviously. And traditionally, those sportsmen's group are people that we should work with. They're also outdoors people. We need to have them as our allies. We need to build those relationships. We don't need to antagonize. And I think when you hear that term, clearly that's, in some cases, that's probably a planted term. Uh, we have to be careful it doesn't take hold. We have to be willing to explain um, what true costs are and how that, that's arrived at. But very honestly, I think the key is, is ranchers need to be not only the stewards of the land, we need to be the advocates for the good guys. We want multiple use we don't want exclusive use we believe in that process and if we can work together on that process that we work as one i think people we have to enjoy that the forest service in 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 many parts of the country united states forest service forests have not been managed for decades you know we have fuel load issues and it doesn't just impact the graze roads it doesn't just impact the grazers it impacts recreation it impacts timber it impacts the entire community. Somehow we have to build the story that we're allies in this and that we need to more effectively manage and we play the important role because we understand the landscape. So let's talk a little bit about the process of moving into those grazing allotments every single year. A lot of people think, oh, they just get to turn out on them. And that, that's a misconception. Uh, you work with your range cons and uh, there's a process that goes in there. So. Well, Eric, I'll, I'll give you the floor on that. Uh, wh when do you start thinking about turning out on those public lands, the work that goes into them, maintaining those lands, the fences, the water supplies, maybe programs and other agencies that you work with to make some of those improvements as well? Sure. Uh, like, like I said, most, a lot of the permits uh, in, in the Black Hills go up about the middle of June. Um, 
depending on the year, uh, we, we start thinking about it. It's probably about the end of May, the first part of June, you start going up there and thinking about maintaining fences. Uh, it's been a real challenge in the Black Hills the last few years. Uh, we, we had the mountain pine beetle epidemic, which killed a lot of the uh, ponderosa pine trees. Um, now they're about four or five years later after the bulk of that epidemic, those trees are rotting. Every time the wind blows, uh, they fall down and they're falling on fences. So. Uh, when I was a kid, uh, you know, 30 years ago, you'd go up there in the spring and you'd, you'd go around all of the fences to maintain them, which is the permittee's responsibility. Uh, and, and you're pretty good for the year. But now, like I said, every time the wind blows, you're up there uh, checking those fences again. We also have a lot of water developments that we need to maintain. Uh, we have some, some uh, dams. There's a few springs. Uh, we've got some dams that we've put in pipelines to protect the spring and the dam. So we, we gravity flow with, through pipelines to a water tank through a, to get it away from the riparian area. So uh, there's maintenance that goes into those. Um, there's not very many of our permittees that are able to just open the gate and turn out. That's, that's one of the unique aspects of the Black Hills. Uh, we hauled about 40 miles is, is what it is up there uh, through uh, beautiful scenic uh, Spearfish Canyon, which is a windy road that, that if you're in a hurry to get up there, you, you just have to, to, to relax because you're not going to get up there in a hurry. That's, there's going to be tourists up there going 30 miles an hour when you're pretty sure you could be going 50 or 55. So it's, it's just uh, one of those things. Um, uh, Maintenance-wise, during the course of the year, you are liable to get a phone call from the sheriff saying you have cows out on the road for whatever reason, a gate left open, a tree falling on the fence, and, and you're you're uh, an hour away, so you you try to get up there when you can, but you know it's 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 a stressful time that they have to do that. Uh, we don't really get a lot of help from other agencies on on the public land, you know. And one thing I always like to stress to people is that the public land is there because nobody homesteaded it, and it's it's, it's not the choicest land. It's it's rough, it's rugged, uh, fencing is very difficult. It's it's full of rocks. It's it's over rim rock. Uh, we utilize some natural barriers, but, but that isn't as effective as, as, as it could be, um, along with all the other uses, the recreational uses, uh, particularly in the Black Hills, that's really become a, uh, a center for recreational use. Uh, a lot of more uh, ATV, UTV traffic, uh, and so there's uh, gates that get left open on that, um, and people love to go up there, and, and part of it, I think, is, is because of the livestock uh, and, and what the permittees have added to that area. Uh, with water development, for example, there, uh, without the permittees up there, the Black Hills wouldn't have a lot of water development. And that helps and wildlife. And that makes a huge difference with wildlife. Um, elk has become a very highly sought-after tag in the Black Hills. Um, and, you know, a little bit on your last question, too. That I think the sportsmen, the, the good elk hunters, understand the role that, that livestock play in the forage health and that the elk will follow the livestock through the pasture rotations so they can eat that regrowth. And, and the good hunters understand that. They understand the role we play. Um, and so there's some synergy there. I'm going to ask a follow-up question, Lane, if you don't mind, because I was just driving through Spearfish in, in early June, and I was headed to a meeting in Wyoming coming out of Rapid City, and I was momentarily confused and thought I'd landed in Dublin in, instead, of, instead of in Rapid City, South Dakota. It was as green in that country as I'd ever seen it. And it made me wonder for a, for a guy that's turning out in that country in a year like we've had this year with the kind of moisture we've had, coming onto a federal permit, and I know the answer to this, but I'm curious to hear your answer to it. Are you able to do some, some planning and make some changes to how you turn out in order to take advantage of those conditions or to account for those conditions? Or are you tied into your permit to a degree that you, you really can't be responsive to that, to that difference in resource condition 
coming into the spring? I mean, do you feel like you have any flexibility there? We do. It seems like the flexibility um, is, is always later. It's never to our advantage, I guess, is, is what it seems like. Uh, and, and we had a unique situation in the Black Hills there this year where it was. We had a lot of moisture, but it was very cool. And particularly in the northern hills, um, we've been getting thunderstorms. We probably get two or three inches a week at our place. But it's been so cool that our grass production is very low. And so we're actually advancing faster than we normally would on our pasture rotation just because of that. Uh, Spearfish had a snow day on May 22nd. They had 13 inches of snow in the foothills, a couple feet up in the hills. And so it's just been very late. So typically our, our on date, which is uh, kind of a set in stone date that you can't turn on before then, but you can certainly turn on after then just because of the range readiness indicators. And there was a lot of people that went on late this year. Uh, there is the mechanism in place that, that you can stay on a little later. You could add a few more AUMs. But honestly, the regulations to get through to make that happen is so cumbersome that it very seldom actually happens. So. And with that, I think it's time to quick a, take a quick sponsor break. I think the sponsor of the podcast. But when we come back, we're going to continue to talk about our outstanding public lands ranchers and get into more of those issues that uh, they are discussing and advocating for in their state capitals in Washington, D.C., and creating policy for here each and every day. But don't go away. We'll be right back. Thanks for joining Cattlemen's Call. Your National Cattlemen's Beef Association knows when it comes to the issues in Washington, there's simply no room for gray area. Trade, fake meat, the cost and impact of the Green New Deal. The decisions being made today affect the livelihood of your fellow farmers and ranchers. And what matters to cattlemen matters to us. It's as clear as black and white. Visit joinncba.org to learn more. All right, thank you so much to our great sponsors of the Cattlemen's Call podcast. We are back today talking about public lands, ranching, and the use, the multi-use of our public lands. Joining us from South Dakota's Eric Jennings, all the way from California, Dave Daly and Ethan Lane with the Public Lands Council and NCBA's Federal Lands Division. Um, we wouldn't be here if there wasn't issues or challenges to public lands ranching or the important role that the multi-use of our public lands play. Um, Dave, I'll start with you. State of California, a little different than other, other states that have uh, public lands grazing, but uh, you, you've been there since the 1850s. Your family has. You understand the landscapes. You know what, what works, what doesn't work. But what are some of those state and federal regulations that just make it pretty hard for you to do what you do? Yeah, obviously California maybe deserves its reputation sometimes. Uh, but I think people who aren't from there forget that half of California is owned by federal government, 50% federal agency, Forest Service, or BLM lands. And there is extensive grazing systems. I mean, we have a powerful agricultural industry in the state that we're really proud of. And I'm actually proud of California with a few exceptions, right? And, and I think what we need to recognize is everybody has those issues, and it's how do we attack those in different ways. So... And in our case, it's balancing both state and federal rules, right? Um, so in some case, obviously, Endangered Species Act, you got a National Endangered Species Act. We have a California Endangered Species Act as well. So, so if we talk about wolves, you know, in the federal delisting of the wolves, which are, we all think are critical and important, that n doesn't necessarily solve problems for me in California. What I would like to see, I mean, it, but it's a huge step. We need to do it. So you look at Endangered Species Act. If I look at our members and our public lands 
land use folks right now, those people who graze on public lands, I would say their priorities and their frustrations are with the level of regulation, both at the federal and state level. That lack of flexibility that we talked about, the unwillingness to think about how do we graze for the landscape rather than graze to a, a number, and how do we do things that improve opportunities for wildlife and opportunities for people. I don't think we're there yet. So we have to, we have to kind of pick which issues we can work on. In our case, I would say for us in particular, if we could get a more effective fire policy at the federal level that would interact with state agencies in a way that was meaningful, this isn't only about just grazing, this is about human life. I mean, we are catastrophic wildfire because of mismanage of forests is a real issue that impacts not just grazers, it impacts the public. So I, I would say if we, we looked at California, we'd say fire, water, predators, and that whole, that, that whole array of issues at, at the endangered species level. Well, let's just focus on fire a little bit here, and then we can maybe break those down. Last few years, I mean, California has gone through just catastrophic wildfires, and it comes, I mean, obviously drought plays a big role in that too, but management and mismanagement are a big part of that. And, and you're a manager out on that landscape as a, as, a, as a cattle grazer. I would say we have to be more proactive and, and aggressive uh, in convincing the general public how fire and grazing are both tools and we aren't there yet. I would, unfortunately, it's taken tragedy in California to get people to pay attention to that. Even in a, in a very liberal state, we have a governor who recognizes that we're going to have to do something about fire. This is a real issue that impacts. And I will say, and I, I tend to be a little bit optimistic, which surprises people when I'm a public lands grazer. I, I think what we've done is we've, grazing is starting to become recognized as a tool, even in what I would consider traditional liberal areas. We can graze, we can use that as a tool, and we can use prescribed fire simultaneously. That's an opportunity that we haven't had in our, in our state capital. We need to push that state and federally. Let's use fire as a tool. Let's use grazing as a tool. And all of a sudden, grazing is cool again in certain circles. We need to take advantage of it now. I, I would absolutely agree with Dave on that. I, I think we have a real opportunity right now. Um, and there's a, there's a synergy there between consumers that are much more interested than they were 10 years ago and where their food comes from. And we spend a lot of time in this industry talking about the fact that people don't know where they think their food comes from the grocery store. I think in some areas we're making a lot of progress on that front, right? People want to know what ranch their beef came from and, and how it was raised. And that's cool. That's an opportunity for us. Um, but it's also an obligation that we need to make sure that in that process, we're helping them to understand all the things that we're doing in those environments throughout the year that, that puts back into the land. Because what they're hearing at the same time from you know, either radical environmental groups or, or animal rights groups or anybody else is that we are you know, the big bad wolf and no different than oil and gas or mining as far as our impact to the resource. And you know, nothing could be further from the truth. And I think you know, Dave and Eric both are from areas that have, that have seen that firsthand. Um, and so you know, we have a real challenge at the national level, I think, to educate on these issues, but also to find ways to change policy so that there is room to manage better for fire. And, and treating those top-level diseases rather than the symptoms, that's something we've focused on. You know, if we have problems with fire, a lot of times it's because of litigation. It's because there's groups that are blocking uh, problems with the forest. You know, how do you target that? You work on NEPA. You work on ESA at a, at a, at a top level to clear some headroom for better management. Eric, how about for yourself over there, uh, working with state officials and, and with federal agencies, um, have you seen any improvements in the last few years and maybe responses to helping manage uh, forests and uh, to improve uh, that, that risk of, of, to lessen the risk of fire? There's, uh, 
uh, kind of a side benefit of the mountain pine beetle epidemic is we've really identified the fact that, that if we put uh, thousands of acres of dead trees in the Black Hills, there's a, a higher fire risk. And, and so the state has really been involved with working with the federal government to try to address the overpopulation of pine trees. Um, in that regard, uh, I know the, the timber people all recognize the importance of cattle grazing to remove those finer fuels off the ground floor to, to slow the spread of the fire, to keep them out of the, of the trees. Because once they start crowning on those pine trees, that's when the fire really spreads in a hurry. Uh, as far as the, and you get out away from the hills into some of the other public lands, the BLM and the national grasslands, we haven't had a lot of bad fires. Uh, I think almost all of the, the big fires that I can think of were actually uh, set by the government and, and got away from on, on prescribed burns. So um, that's uh, it's kind of a good and a bad from living in South Dakota. We don't have enough grass production to really generate much of a fire, uh, but uh, at least on the BLM. But Dave? Well, one of the things that, that I was thinking about is, uh, as I listen to Eric and I think about our national issues, California, we have been started to be more aggressive with our public lands group within the state. We started to get workshops together with our agency people and our permittees. We have an unbelievable number of vacant allotments in the United States Forest Service. Allotments that are not being used. To a certain extent, that's true in BLM. I don't know those numbers as well because I'm a Forest Service permittee. But there's like 200 vacant allotments in California that have not been grazed. And the excuse every time is NEPA, NEPA. NEPA, to the point that our permittees don't even want to talk about it anymore. That if we don't have some fundamental change here, we talk grazing as a tool and we can make a difference. We talk we can improve the forest health, and then we don't do anything about it because we can't even get there. And if we don't have some fundamental changes in NEPA, I'm not sure how we're ever going to get back on the landscape and do the right thing. So, Ethan, let's talk about trying to get some of those changes, working with these different agencies out in Washington, D.C., your boots on the ground every day out in the nation's capital. What are some of those uh, steps that you've taken with your team over the past few years and with the Trump administration to uh, have your voice heard on these, especially on NEPA and ESA reform? So, so PLC uh, and, and on our national affiliates and our state affiliates recognized before the president even took office what an opportunity this was. And, and we attacked that by preparing a transition document. We had everybody from all of our state affiliates and all of our national affiliates come into Denver for a meeting back in December uh, during the transition uh, after the election in 2016. And we had an all-hands meeting, and we all sat there in a room full of whiteboards for a full day, and we talked about what this industry really needed to prioritize in this administration. And NEPA was right at the top of that list along with the SA and grazing regs. Um, what we found in the, in the process is we didn't have a lot of comprehensive NEPA policy in the industry. Basically, our policy was NEPA's a pain, right? And that's true, but we need to go deeper than that. So we formed a committee, uh, a working group, and Bob Skinner, our current PLC president, chaired that until he took the presidency over, at which time J.J. Gokachia uh, took that committee over. And that committee focused first on NEPA and then on grazing regs. And what they did was a deep dive into NEPA in order to make recommendations for comprehensive NEPA policy, which we've since passed at both NCBA and PLC. Um, and, and using that policy, we submitted a, a, a document to the administration and essentially said, this is what the, the, the livestock grazing industry needs out of NEPA. This is where we identified some problems 
You know, this is where you can use categorical exclusions. And quite frankly, um, in the roundtables and things I've been involved in in the, the several years of this administration, it's become incredibly clear how different we are in NEPA than a lot of these other groups. I sat at a roundtable at the, at the Department of Interior two and a half years ago with Secretary Zinke and his team, and there were probably 30 different groups in the room. And there were pipeline companies, transmission line folks. And I remember the people that did the Delaware Gap uh, transmission line in the Northeast, which was a massive infrastructure project, were complaining that the NEPA took them three years to get that project done. And and I sat at the other end of the table, and I, I kind of I sat back in my chair, and I, I must have been more dramatic than I meant to be because everyone kind of looked my direction. I said, we shouldn't even be in the same room with you guys. And we have permittees that have been waiting 15 years for a renewal on a permit with a continuing use and no resource issues. And yet here we sit. And, and so it really is a unique application of NEPA in the cattle industry. It's an over-application of NEPA for the cattle and sheep industry both. So what we're hopeful to see out of this based on those changes that we've recommended, and I do think we're going to see movement from the White House on NEPA maybe in the next few weeks, um, is, is a, 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 some guidance heading down to the agencies that, that better communicates to them not just what their authority is under NEPA, but, but where they don't need to be spending time and resources to use it as a tool. Because it becomes an incredibly effective weapon for the environmentalists to take us to court, to take the agencies to court, and to stop rightful multiple-use activity. You know, you mentioned the sheep industry, and of course, we're at, we're at a cattle meeting right now, but J.J. Goikachia, he's a state veterinarian in Nevada, public lands rancher. He, in talks that I've had with him, he always uses the example that the sheep industry always faces the headwinds first before the cattle industry. And that's why cattle producers really need to pay attention to what is happening to those sheep producers on public lands and with wildlife interaction with the bighorn sheep. And because they're going after the sheep producers, they'll come after the cattle producers next, these radical groups. And uh, I guess... What would your response be to your fellow cattle producers to look look in the same industry but a different species that people are raising? Yeah, the sheep industry, in, in some cases, has been a really tough tail. It was very, uh, very strong industry in all of California. And frankly, I still think we're second or third in sheep production. We have a large packing plant out there and a strong enough bass culture that there's still some big operators that, that work in that country that we're really proud of. But just their ability to access public lands is almost non-existent any, anymore. I mean, it's a really difficult challenge for them. And it's one that in, in some respects, particularly in my country, which was sheep dominated at one time, it actually in some respects makes more sense than cattle because it's a browse range. But nobody was able to survive in that business because of all of the issues that surrounded their ability to operate. They were pushed from business. And we do need to pay attention. I, I somehow, though, would like to phrase that. we got to do that without being, um, I hate to use a, a, a weak pun, but crying wolf. We, we have to somehow tell a positive story instead of look like we're poor little me. And I think sometimes if we get in this negative, oh, poor little me, the big guys are after us, we look weak yep. and we don't look proactive. And I think, you know, somehow we need to be able to say, hey, we are, we're environmentalists too. And somehow we shy from that sometimes to say we do the right things on the landscape and we don't need to position ourselves as the anti-environmental group. We may be anti-radicals, but we want to do the right thing for the landscape just like anybody else. Well, and just speaking on that point, uh, actually, um, the Ruby Valley Strategic Alliance out of Montana, it's a group of ranchers, the conservation districts, the, the water users, and then these uh, conservation environmental groups were five, ten years ago. These guys couldn't even be in the same room 
And last year, and I've used this as an example of a lot of my talks, and when I interact with people, I went on this tour last year, and these ranchers talked about how irrigation helps replenish the groundwater, how it improved. We have fish and game officials in Montana talking about how that public lands grazing has increased elk herds on there. Maybe what are some of your experiences maybe now that you didn't have a few years ago with maybe some of these conservation groups? You don't agree with them, maybe. I don't want to put words in anyone's mouths, but having that dialogue has changed because these groups are finally, you're telling a positive story. How, is, how has that changed maybe for you? Maybe you haven't seen that yet, but maybe some examples uh, from, from Eric and Dave. Oh, excuse me, go ahead. Uh, I, you know, uh, elk, as I mentioned before, elk has is a, is a become a major species in the Black Hills. Uh, I, there's a big, there's been a big turnaround from our state game department, the Game Fish and Parks of, of South Dakota, recognizing the importance that cattle pay, play in in the forage production and the grass health in in the Black Hills. Uh, five or six years ago, it was extremely adversarial between the state and the permittees uh, on elk. Um, we we did a lot of education. Uh, they were coming after the permittees pretty hard for overutilization of the forest, uh, even though there was no range people uh, really on the staff of Game and Fish. They did not understand forage health. They didn't understand utilization. They didn't understand monitoring, but that didn't stop them from forming an opinion. Uh, so we've, we've done a lot of education on that. We've had uh, stakeholder groups that we've gotten together. Um, and even now there's uh, a program in place, a process there where the, the state uh, game gets together with the Forest Service and, and does an annual tour to evaluate the range conditions and and uh, if, if need be they will have some extra elk tags contingency tags is what they're called to reduce the number of elk so you know it, it is possible for these groups to get together even when they start pretty adversarially as long as they come with the right attitude and and want to work together um, and I think we're gonna see that we're, we are starting to see that with uh, more recreational groups I, I'm sit on a board of directors for the Black Hills Regional Multiple Use Coalition which is a, a group in the Black Hills area of about 40 different user groups, whether it be recreational or commodity, that we all just sit around the table, probably we meet 10 or 11 times a year, and, and talk about our issues and, and agree on, on how we can have a management or how to manage the area that benefits us all and, and understand each other's issues and, and then take those back to our, our normal groups. So um, that is possible and, and it's, it's being done. Uh, we just have to realize that that this is public use and that we all have to get along and it's and manage it on a holistic basis yep. Dave what did you want to add on that well I've seen open spaces become a, a little bit of a rallying cry in California for urban areas and it's one that we need to work with because we are the open space yep. and we protect that for all citizens of California it, and I think it's a good message we protect biodiversity we protect the landscape water quality wildlife all those things and I think we've been able to shift that dialogue that one of the things I think people don't understand and we need to work harder on is if we lose our public lands those private lands are going to be, in our case, ranchettes, split, lost as open space forever. So it's not just the public lands. That if, we're, if we move from public lands and are no longer allowed to graze, you're going to leave, lose a lot of what I would call the, the, the good prime lands in the valley to housing, urban development, and other things. So we have to move those together. Just a real quick one. In, our, in one part of our state, there's a big rice industry in the valley, flat, lots of water. Everybody hated them in Sacramento. 
They used water. They burnt rice straw. They were evil. They destroyed bird habitat. They did a public relations campaign that essentially says, you know, we're going to do we're going to do egg walks before we harvest. We're going to get the little kids out there to do it. We're going to change the way we manage water. We're going to be a reach. It was just a public relations campaign. Now in Sacramento, they're the good guys. They yeah. in 15 years they went from evil to good, and they're now their advertisements now call themselves the environmental crop. Every advertisement they come with. Well, our friends, the Osgothorps in Park City, Utah, are a good example of that, too. They've been in that uh, valley for, for many years, and the city approached them to create conservation easements in those open spaces. You know, just from a national perspective on this whole issue, I think what we're seeing, and, and I think both of these guys hit on it, these conservation groups are starting to recognize that they can't accomplish anything they want to without us. We are the key piece of any real large landscape conservation action. And those conservation benefits start with the management we put on the ground. So years and years of the kind of default uh, uh, mentality in the conservation community being grazing's bad, grazing's an impact, you know, um, I, I think they've got to set aside and I think they are more and more as we have these conversations stepping away from those old incorrect views and understanding what a powerful tool we are. If you embrace us not from a perspective of this can be okay, but here's how you need to change and instead saying, gosh, thank you for what you're doing. How can we be helpful in maximizing what you're doing? Now, uh, going off of that, Ethan, recently you were in front of a uh, House committee, Senate. Senate committee, excuse me, on natural resources uh, with a panel of uh, individuals a few years ago ag would not be discussing with. But to, to your point, they understand they can't do this without the help of agriculture. And that was discussing wild horses and burrows. Uh, could you share a little bit about that and, and uh, sure. all that? <laughs> well, you know, it is. It, that's a, it is an interesting example and you know don't blink because this is probably the only time you're going to see us on a document with the Humane Society of the United States and ASPCA but those were the the partners we needed to negotiate with here on this issue and then the reason for that and I said this in my Senate testimony and I'll say it again now is because the Senate and the House in Capitol Hill on Capitol Hill in Washington DC have shown they have zero political courage to fix the problem they themselves created by blocking the BLM's ability to manage the horses and burrows they own, period. It's not the burrows' fault, it's not the horses' fault, it's not the activists' fault, it's not the ranchers' fault, it's Congress's fault because they're prohibiting the use of funds to effectively and appropriately manage these animals. And the result is catastrophic range damage and spiraling populations that are far exceeding what the range can support. There's no other way to, there's no other way to you know, get around that issue, but it does leave us in a position where we are the most impacted stakeholder group and our members have made it clear, we don't care how you do it, but you've got to get that on-range population down. So recognizing that reality, we sat down with these groups, uh, we sat down with some states and, and, and we worked through this, this proposal um, and got to a point where we felt like it was realistic enough that it wasn't, you know, a lot of sort of, and I don't mean this in a disparaging way, but kind of, you know, the activist community tends to be a little bit fantasy land sometimes. They're not rooted in the reality of a lot of these issues, right? It's, it's based on a lot of kind of core belief and things they saw in Netflix documentaries and whatever else, or what they just were able to sell to their members, right? By and large, we have to deal in facts and reality. So our challenge in this was injecting enough reality into what this plan looks like that it has a chance of actually succeeding. We think we've done that. Um, it's now Congress's turn yet again to step in and fund it and direct BLM to implement it. Um, the idea here is 
if we're not able to use slaughter, if we're not able to use unlimited sale to get these populations down, because I guarantee you that method will work. If we can't use those because they're unpalatable to Congress, then what we need is aggressive gathers, 15 to 20,000 a year for the next four or five years at least. You need to touch every horse and burrow you're pulling off the range with some sort of population growth suppressant. We think PZP is an ineffective tool but we think there are more coming online. Things like Gonicon are showing a lot of promise. Surgical spay works like a charm if they would just use it. There are tools out there to get, to get a hold of this problem and we want them to use all of those tools. And then we want them to dramatically, in the short term, step up their off-range holding program to house those horses for one generation and then get them out. What we don't want is a, is a repeat you know, process where 30 years from now we're still populating those holding pens. How many of these animals are out on the rangeland currently? 88,000 as we sit here today, as is always the case with this thing, they never quite factor in this year's full crop into that yep. number. They kind of come, it's a, it's a lagging average. Um, uh, but so, you know, I, I mean, it's, 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 a, uh, it's a big number. We expect another 18,000 this year. Uh, they have another 50,000 in off-range holding. Um, and the population grows at 20% a year. You know, it, it, you really can't debate those facts. And, and look, BLM gathered 11,000 horses last year. That's the most they've gathered in a long time. They treated 700 with some kind of population growth suppressant. So we, we think they had at least 3,000 babies in captivity once they, once they gathered them from the range. So, I mean, you know, those are the numbers. And it's, it, it really is, it's, it's going to overwhelm. You know, the water's going to get over the top of the dam here pretty quick. And, and I think if you talk to folks who have horses in their backyard, they'll tell you they've been there for several years now. Now, uh, a big problem that we're seeing on the endangered species side of things are grizzly bears. And I was talking to uh, sheep producer John Helley out of Dillon, Montana, before I flew down here the other day. And I just said, hey, how, how, how's it look up on the allotments up in the Gravelly Mountains? And he goes, there's bears everywhere. And they have uh, legal uh, H-2A workers that come every year and, uh, and help them uh, shepherd those sheep. And he goes, he fears for their lives every day. He fears for his family's lives when they're all out there. Why is it so important? I, I, I'm just going to bring this up. The Public Lands Council annual meeting is going to be the 25th through the 28th in Great Falls, Montana. And you're going to take stakeholders and PLC members on a tour up on the Rocky Mountain front showing them that type of bear country in north central Montana. And then this is southwest Montana where John Helley's at. But, you know, it comes down to ESA and those regulations and... Uh, why is it so important to get these bears delisted, first off, just to be able to manage them in an appropriate way? Well, you know, these, these apex predator listing issues are really unique because, you know, the general public, folks who live in downtown Denver or downtown Salt Lake City, are, are, are perfect, it's perfectly within their rights to think it's really cool to imagine that there are grizzly bears still roaming the American West or that there are wolves you know, living in their native habitat in the American West. And that is cool. But there's got to be an understanding and a respect for the men and women and the families that work and live in those environments. You know, I'm from Arizona. My family had a place in, in northern Arizona with Mexican gray wolves on, on the property. And, and I can tell you that you know, when you have to make those decisions and you have to make those calculations every time you walk out the door and you have livestock, you have animals to protect, and you have little kids and dogs, and, and you're thinking constantly about the threat that's, that's quite literally waiting at the tree line and watching everything you do, um, it, it has a far different impact on how you live your life than it does if you're admiring them from afar. And, and so, you know, it's one of those 
issues we always struggle with with public lands and, and these issues because those, those voters, those taxpayers that live in condos in downtown Salt Lake City have every, much, every bit as much of a right to comment and weigh in on how we manage these resources as, as we do sitting around this table. But we do have a special space in that discussion because we are impacted. We do live there. And, and so working on ways to make sure that ESA is implemented in a way that respects that and, and does take into consideration the, 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 the feelings and, and, and issues of those people that are actually going to have to deal with the effects of an endangered species listing, especially in a charismatic species. Because, you know, public opinion isn't always the best barometer of what's right, um, but it is certainly hard to ignore sometimes. And, and nowhere is that more uh, uh, obvious than when you talk about grizzlies and wolves and things like that. Yeah, I, California, we have a major predator, predator issue. I just finished my term as president of California Cattle, and I traveled the state to every county. It was the subject, and it's, it's predators on steroids. Um, people may not realize, but the, the bear on the California flag is a grizzly bear. So there are those discussions about when it'll come back. We now have wolves back, and they are also protected at the state level. Our mountain lions are protected. I have a significant predator issue with mountain lions. Um, and the list goes on, just regular bears. They've, they've limited the hunting process on just our brown bears. And so I see this everywhere. Um, and it, the, the, the challenge with that one, to be honest, I don't have an easy solution because we tend to lose it on this one with public. And so we have to be, wherever we can, we have to get what we can to at least be able to have depredation permits, ways to work through the process. We have some of those in California. We don't have enough. But I don't see this problem getting smaller. Um, until there's an impact on recreation or urban areas, um, people tend to ignore what we do. And even in that case, sometimes they, they blame the person if there's an impact on a recreation area. I won't, I won't attribute this to anybody who maybe doesn't want this quote attributed to him, but I, you're exactly right. And I, I had a, a fairly senior government official two years ago tell us exactly that. Until the hikers start getting dragged off the trails by grizzly bears, they're not going to understand the reality of, of, of you know, doing what they're wanting to have done. You know, we, we've talked about a lot of the, uh, the challenges that public lands ranchers are facing, but what are some of those positive aspects that you have out in the countryside, the, you know, the rewarding aspect of being able to be a part of that multi-use plan and to enhance that habitat and to be able to stay in business? Uh, Eric, what, what does that mean to you? Yeah, I'm I, I reminded of, a, of my neighbor that, uh, that we were talking about life in the public lands and life in the forest and and what a pain it can be at times, you know, when you're fighting snow, you're fighting public, and you're fighting this, and you're fighting that. And, but, he, but he reminded me, he said, you know, my best days, I get to go up there and check on cows. You know, it's, it's a wonderful spot to be in. The, it's, uh, South Dakota can be very dry, particularly in western South Dakota. You go up in the hills, they get a lot more moisture, and you can see the Timothy grass is, is pretty darn tall, and the water is pretty fresh. The calves do wonderful up there. Uh, those calves will, will come out of there 50 or 100 pounds heavier than everybody else's. Um, and, and you know, and we we cuss wildlife often, but we enjoy seeing them too. You know, it's it's fun to be able to see a herd of elk and right up until they wipe out your fence. But it was fun up until that point, and, <laughs> and uh, so so the, yeah, there are a lot of challenges, but there's a lot of benefits too. And and it's you know it's part of a way of life for us. And and, and I think that we all respect the fact that that we're still carrying on the tradition set by our ancestors, and and uh, and we recognize the the contributions we make to the health of the of the public lands and i th i think we we uh, uh are, are uh, rewarded by that and, and honored by the fact that we're able to do that so dave 
I, I would echo Eric's comments. I, I don't see any of us wanting to change that. We do have a tendency to complain a little bit, and I think it's the nature of our business. Um, don't go to a sale barn or you get every negative comment in one day if you really want to. And, and I really, I think in some respects, I understand that. But we're still doing it because we love it. And I don't see that going away. And we value those landscapes, those ecosystems, the wildlife. You know, that's part of who we are. And I, I don't want to go away from it. In some respects, I think one of our challenges with the public is, is we do come across as negative. And I think we have to, you know, I come to the, the NCBA meetings and I'm really proud of the leadership. I'm proud of the people who show up. But you sit in meetings and people complain about this and complain about this and complain about that. I don't think that takes us very far with the public. I think we need to think about how do we be more positive about what we do instead of negative. And I'm positive about what I do if I'm not optimistic. And I, I got fond of saying to some of the cattlemen's groups, if it's so bad, then rent me your grass, right? You know, if it's so bad, get out of business and I'll rent it. Because there's people, young people, who would desperately like to get into this business. So if it's really that tough, let somebody else take a chance. So I'm, I'm positive. I'm excited. I, want, I don't see federal lands grazing going anywhere if we can change this this dynamic to say look at the good things we do for the landscape we need to stay there and that was going to be my next question where do you see the future of federal lands grazing eric so you you answered it perfectly you read my mind but eric how about for yourself where do you see it for that next generation of your family's operation yeah i, I think it will continue on always um i don't have any children so i'm not sure where, where ours is going to go um the Black Hills, uh, just we face a lot of development pressure. So I, I fear that uh, without public lands, if something ever happened to where it would be harder to be on public lands, uh, kind of like Dave was talking about earlier, those those smaller private land parcels in the hills are going to get subdivided. And that has catastrophic effects to the to the wildlife, to the recreation. Um, and, and so I, 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 that, that part concerns me. Uh, as you move out away from the Black Hills and get it in the national grasslands and some of the BLMs, um, you know, they, they face continual struggles, and but it's an important part of agriculture in South Dakota is to maintain those public lands. And agriculture is, I think we're up to a $32 billion industry in South Dakota. It's the number one industry in South Dakota. It's very dependent on agriculture. Um, all the other programs get funded really from the agricultural base, and, and, and public lands is a significant part of that in western South Dakota, and, and so it's important to carry that on. How, how do young producers that have never had their families maybe never had a public grazing permit because a lot of the time it gets passed through the operation. What's your advice to a young producer out there? Is it possible to get in there and work with those? I mean, you mentioned there's a lot of land out there that uh, it, those allotments aren't being utilized just because of uh, other reasons, obviously. But, you know, that that's something I think we don't talk about sometimes is how's that next generation that maybe only has a 1,000 acres of lease land or deed land, you know, how do they acquire one of those public lands leases? We haven't made it easy. I think the policies at the federal level have made it almost impossible to do. I think it's it's something we should look at. And I, I honestly don't think that's just about public lands. That's about all lands. We don't have a mechanism to, we talk about encouraging young people, but we really don't have a process, right? And if we were really honest in that process and we said that was really important, as those permits or allotments became available, we'd try and figure out a mechanism to say, okay, local young producers have first opportunity to those things I don't know if we got that program in place but I think if we were really honest and we wanted people to have that opportunity we'd step back and say how to do it I am my, my young or my oldest son is full-time with me on the ranch wants to continue and his question is how do I get a vacant allotment right I said yep. go fix NEPA yep. <laughs> right? and Ethan you know uh, that that's 
your purpose is to work with these elected officials, these agencies to, to try and fix that. Uh, what, what's your outlook for, 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 for all that? You know, when, when I when I came to work here four years ago, my wife laughed when this opportunity first came up and she said, how did you figure out a way to work for an industry that you, you love their product so much and you know you come from that background and I mean I, I, I think it's such a cool time to be a beef consumer. Right. And, and, and I mean, the, the different things people are doing in their operations that are translating into this this crazy diverse array of products available at the grocery store. And and so we view our job as, as focusing on creating as much headroom as possible for our producers on the ground to do that. Right. To pursue whatever that whatever that value proposition is that, that makes their ranch unique, that's going to give them the ability to to, to stay viable and, and, and thrive. For the next 50 years and what a cool opportunity to, to focus on that but yeah I mean the best way we can do that is to hear these concerns and and look for ways to target those key problems that are systemic in the in the in the federal lands grazing uh, uh, administration and 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 try to either cure them or or make them work better um, and it's a it's a work in progress right we're gonna continuously have to look at that and, and change based on conditions, based on public opinion. Um, and we're gonna have to keep a real strong eye on those core principles of, of why we're out there, why we deserve to stay out there, why we're so important to the ecosystems and, and the communities that we that we serve. Um, but but I, I do think there are some incredible opportunities right now from a market perspective. And I think that public lands ranchers have one of the coolest stories to tell in that space. Um, so I, I'm excited about it. It's, it's a fun time to be working on this stuff. Um, we're making progress on a lot of issues that I think people felt like we may never make progress on. I think we're going to have a lot of stuff happen this year that um, I certainly didn't think I would see in my lifetime. Um, so it's, it's a, there's a lot of reason to be optimistic right now. And to Dave's point, you know, I know there's always folks at meetings that come with their, hang, their head hung down and, and they're grumpy about what's happened in their operation. But, man, there's a lot of cool stuff happening right now. There's a lot of reason for optimism. Well, gentlemen, we've been talking here for just over 50 minutes, and I know you have a busy day here this afternoon. Uh, any last comments you want to share with uh, the listeners of the Cattleman's Call? Just any advice on the ranching end, uh, any insight, or maybe tell a joke. <laughs> Keep it clean. I, you know, I, I, um, my, my operation was such that I couldn't get away for a lot of years, and, and now I've kind of restructured my operation, and so I've been able to get a little more involved in, in public lands and NCBA and, and certainly South Dakota cattlemen, uh, the structure and the issues. And so I just encourage people to get involved, and that's, that's one thing about running on pu public lands that you learn very early on is that there's a lot of forces against us, and you need to be involved to counteract those forces and, and, and promote your message and promote the fact that, that we're providing uh, – some good management to those public lands and benefiting the health and and so i think that's probably would be my advice for younger producers is is to not be afraid to get involved and because that's an important aspect of your business yeah I, I would concur with eric i think there's there are some great opportunities and i think it's not it's it's our senior leadership it's it's our producers and it's our younger folks is is somehow we have to become the good guys in this whole discussion we have to be the people on the front that I want to be the environmental crop. Again, the one that Rice stole from us. I want to be the people who say, oh, they're the, they're the people who protected the landscape. They're the right guys out there for wildlife and for water quality. And without them, we're going to lose our whole, we're going to lose the West is what we're going to lose if we don't keep them on the landscape. So do that in a good way. I would really encourage young people to be involved, but I think we have to create opportunities for them that are a little different at the association level. 
Um, they get bored by three-hour policy meetings that read resolutions that have been on the books 10 years. They aren't interested because it's, it's an old-school way of looking at things. And I only say that because I, I associate with enough young people in, in part of what I do. We have to think creatively about if we want them engaged, get them engaged in a way that they want to participate, and they will bring great value to our system. From our perspective and from mine, nothing makes me happier than a full room of producers that I've never seen before. Because that means we have new people coming through the door. And you know what's funny about it is the second the light bulb goes off for them and they realize, oh, man, there are people here that are having the same problems I am and, and that understand this issue. And, and I mean, you, you, you can see that they, they all of a sudden realize they're not alone in these things and that there's a lot of other people working on this stuff. Um, so I would echo both of these guys. I mean, you know, finding not just ways to get more producers involved, but bring their kids, too because I think it's incredibly important that we build that foundation with the next generation. Uh, every once in a while we'll hear somebody say, you know, we don't go to those, that's dad's thing. I stay home on the ranch. We cannot get into that trap. We've got to be, this has got to be a, a generational thing and, and everybody in the family has got to be in the mix on this stuff. We, we can't afford to, to, to skip a generation. So um, I would sure just echo what both of these guys have said. And my last point is uh, for our friends listening today that maybe uh, don't run on public lands or they're not uh, too familiar with them, you need to support these ranchers that are a part of the important role of the, of the multi-use and utilizing these public lands uh, to, to enhance the health of the rangeland and forest land and, and of course, uh, stay in business. So, and Jennifer Houston, uh, the current president of NCBA, she really does, she puts it best. She's from Tennessee. They have public lands, but it's parks, you know, and uh, not a lot of grazing opportunities out there, but she, she shows up to learn about what's going on, and that's how we need to support each other in the industry. And, and and that goes the same for Western ranchers. They need to know what's going on down in, in, in the southeast, in the northeast, and uh, and that's why we come to these events or we utilize these multimedia platforms just to learn about what's going on. So, again, anything else that, that you guys want to share here today? I know it's getting close to lunch. Well, we got about an hour before lunch. But, uh, again, I, I just want to thank Eric, Dave, and, and Ethan for sitting down and uh, just sharing a little bit of knowledge and information on the importance of public lands ranching here in the United States. For more information on public lands ranching, you can visit the publiclandscouncil.org or the NCBA's website to learn more about their federal lands committee. All right, friends, thanks for joining us here today. Make sure and subscribe to the Cattleman's Call podcast. I'm Lane Nordland. We'll catch you next time. Thanks for tuning in to NCBA's Cattleman's Call podcast with Lane Nordland. For more information, visit ncba.org and make sure to subscribe to the podcast today.